Let me uh, pray for us, and then we will begin. Father, um, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have given us um, these passages, these chapters, this book of First and Second Samuel. And we thank you for the things that you're teaching us, and we thank you for David, whose heart um, at once is so beautiful before you, and at other times, he's a sinner. And Lord, it gives us a picture of ourselves. But Father, we thank you for this day um, where we see David's heart reaching out in Hesed love and giving us a glimpse of the love of the Savior for us. So Lord, I ask you to be with us as we talk about today and talk about Hesed love and talk about wars. And uh, just ask that you would teach our hearts and that we would leave here today knowing Jesus more. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Well, last week we studied, I think, what is one of the most beautiful and central passages in all of Scripture. Most certainly, it is the central passage in First and Second Samuel. I knew we were missing someone, but I won't. I'm not going to raise any names or anything like that. <laughs> Uh-huh. Is that what you used to tell your mom? <laughs> My clock was wrong, Mom. Okay. So, um, anyway, so what we talked about last week was God's covenant with David. And if you remember, Rebecca so beautifully unfolded for us, even with a migraine, she beautifully unfolded for us, um, just how, um, how David decided that he wanted to build God a house. And, and that, was, that seemed like a beautiful thing. And I mean, how could David not want to build God a house? I mean, he had brought, after much turmoil, he had finally brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And he had danced before it. And, and he was just so happy. And then the priest put that Ark in the tent. And David went home to his house of cedar. And he would look out and there would be... The, the Ark of the Covenant in the tent, and he was living in this house. I mean, how could he not want to do that? So he went, he went to uh, Nathan, and he told him what was on his heart, and Nathan said, do what is in your heart. However, as Rebecca told us uh, last week, God put a stop to that building plan because there was a lesson that the king needed to learn, and he needed to learn it well. And the, in fact, that is the lesson that all of God's children need to learn, you and I need to learn, and we need to be reminded of it over and over and over. And here's the lesson. The lesson is that David and we have to be reminded that the kingdom that God lets us be a part of, calls us into, be a part of, is God's kingdom. And that God was the sovereign king, and God is the sovereign king. And David needed to understand what that meant. Because God's kingdom is about what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. You see, David needed to see this most beautiful thing, and it's what we need to see also. David, I am building you a house. And so God then unfolded the blueprints of the house he was building David. 
And you remember that we talked about that, that with each turning of the pages of that blueprint, the house grew in goodness. First, God reminded David of what he had already done. He had taken David from following the sheep and he had anointed him, the least of Jesse's son, the one that wasn't even called to appear before Samuel. He called him and he said, you're going to be my king. And then he reminded David of how he had been with David wherever he had gone, and he had cut off all of his enemies, and that included Goliath. And it had included Saul and all of the enemies in between, and he had cut them off. And then God told David what he was going to do for the people he had entrusted to to David for Israel. He says, I'm going to plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And then God told David that he would give him rest from all of his enemies. And and what we find is that David is going to have rest, but it's not the final rest. And then um, God enlarged David's understanding, and he said, The Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled, I will raise up your offspring, and I will establish his kingdom. And he, David, shall build my house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will discipline him, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. And we're going to see that unfold. And, and what we begin to see is then this final pro- promise is the greatest promise. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And then what did David do? Well, he went in and he sat before the Lord and he drank in the promises of God. And of course, he could not come to the end of the wonders that the Lord God Almighty was promising him. And, he, and, and what he was promising him was not only for then and not only for a near, a near future, but for the furthest expanse of time. So David grasped hold of what he possibly could of those promises, and they were deep and they were vast. But he could not have known how much it would cost God to make that covenant. He could have no idea that the promises he received were true and good, but those promises that he received for that time were only shadows of something so remarkable and so unspeakably beautiful that eternity will never, ever empty the glory of all of those promises. And David had no idea how much he would need that covenant to hold on to in the future days of his reign. You see, that's the wonder of God's promises. Because he, what he does for us is that he begins to unfold things for us. He unfolds things in his promises from Genesis to Revelation, from eternity past, and he gives us a look into eternity future. And they contain the already and the not yet. You see, the covenant that, that David received held true for him, for David's moments and his days. And they reached into the near future, into Solomon's life, And then they reached into the future offspring that came from that, the kings that would sit always on the throne of David. And then they they reach further to the Davidic king, the true Davidic king, whose throne would be established forever. And then they reach into the future reign that goes on through all eternity. And each realm, 
Each time God unfolds something in a covenant, it just expands our understanding of how great his love is for us. And so we move on today to chapter 7 and the hugeness of all that God has promised to David and his people. And here's what we wonder. How will David respond to these promises? And I can't turn my page. How will he embrace these promises in the midst of his days? And today in our passage, it was wonderful, wasn't it? I mean, I love this because we find David walking in the light of God's covenant. But next week, darkness comes in. And next week, we will be walking in the shadows, and we will be doing that for most of the rest of 2 Samuel. And that's been curious to me. Because here's the thing. When I read about David's Hesed love in chapter 9, that's the king I want. That's the king I want to hear about. And so I, I just, I, I hoped, I hope. I, I know, I know the story of David. I wanted him to be that king. And as Dale Ralph Davis says, he says, here we have David acting kindly and loyally and bravely. But soon we will have David throwing kindness and loyalty to the winds. Here is David controlled by his covenants and his memories. But soon we will see David driven by his glands and his secrets. Here David spares and mourns life. And soon we will find him trampling and destroying life. That's not the king I want to hear about. Not that king. But you see, that longing is in our hearts. And that's what God means us to do. He's always making us long for something else because David couldn't do it. And so he gives us this longing. We want a faithful, triumphant king. But really, one of the things we're going to learn about David as we go into this shadowy places that we're going to go is he's going to learn about God and his covenant and how it is so central to our lives as sinners. And so that will be what we will learn as we go on. Okay, so in chapter 8, I loved, loved, loved what Rebecca said last week because this is what she said. She said, when we have a promise for rest, it is a call to battle. It's a fight of faith. That rest comes at the end of a long-fought war. And is it not amazing how prominent War is in First and Second Samuel. I mean, it's everywhere. So I went through and I marked all the chapters that had something about war in them. And here's what I found. First Samuel chapters 4, 7, 11, 13, 14, 15, 17, 19, 23, 29, 30. Second Samuel 2, 5, 8, 10, 11, 12, 21. All have mentions of battles or whole chapters on battles, wars. And chapter 8, which falls in immediately following um, God's covenant promises to David, is about war. And, and it's about, um, and then in chapter 10 for our lesson today, which starts out with another offer of covenant loyalty and breaks out in a great war. But what we find in chapter 8, most, most uh, commentators believe, is a summary of David's wars. It's not just... It's not just one or two wars, but it's kind of like an archive of David's wars. And, and it's, a, it's a summary of it, of what David is doing. And here's what I, I want you to begin to see. 
what we find David doing in chapter 8, what that is unfolding for us is the expansion of the kingdom going forth. And this is important because it seems that what David is doing in those wars is that he is claiming the land that God so long ago promised to Abraham. I'm going to read to you just one um, few short uh, verses from Genesis um, 15. And it says this, When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. That's the promise. Now, I, I started looking these up on the Internet just to see where they were. And some of them are unknown. Some of those places are unknown. But they were all right around in the land of Canaan that God had promised to give to Abram. And I, what I want you to know is, is that's the expanse. The expanse of the promise was that the land was going to be given to Abram. And if you remember, Abram never had any of that land except burial places. That was the only part of the land that he had. But it was just this huge expanse of land that God said, I'm going to give this to you and to your seed, Abram. And so notice that, that when God made that promise to Abram and his offspring, that land was already inhabited land. In order for that promise to be fulfilled, the peoples of the land would have to be driven out. That's When God said, I'm going to give you this, that's what that meant. That's what it means. When I'm going to give you rest, you're going to have to fight battles in order to get it. And thus we return to the war spoken in chapter 8. The land where these wars were being fought was covenant land. This is the land God had given his people by promise, and now he's doing it by reality. The land promised centuries ago was now being claimed to its fullest boundaries. However, the promise is, the problem is this. It did not happen easily. It did not happen peacefully. The land was gained through years and years and years of war. Terrible war. Bloody war. In the events of chapter 8, if this is a summary, this probably covered 10, 12 years. That's a long time. That's a long time for men to be engaged in endangering encounters and a long time for men to be exposed. I can't get my papers apart here. To fear and hunger and deprivation and debilitating injuries and, of course, death. There was so much death. We read about death all the time in First and Second Samuel. That's a long time, think about it, for mothers to await the return of their sons or for wives to await the return of their husbands as they wondered what will they be like when they come back or will they come back at all. It was a long time for children to wait to see the faces of their fathers. The author in both chapter 8 and chapter 10 give us this, this stark description of these wars. Just stark. But underneath, we are not to forget that these wars were fought by husbands and fathers and sons. In the scripture narratives, we are invited to enter into the story and engage the reality of what was written. 
because war is such a difficult reality for us, and war continues all the time. But, but these wars in particular, in Scripture narrative, when we read, it, we just prefer to read the facts. We don't want anything more than that. We, we don't want to read about the really hard and costly things of the wars because the wars of Scripture make us uneasy. Too many questions arise. And, and in some of the wars, some of the things that God has told the people to do to completely ra- wipe out the people, it's an embarrassment to us. War, what are we to do with that? Well, there is something else radiating from these passages, something that is a, at once um, makes us uneasy. At the same time, I think it's kind of... Um, it's encouraging because in chapter 8, it's a refrain. In chapter 10, it's a statement of faith because in chapter 8, we find this, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And in chapter 10, it is surprisingly a statement by Joab. Joab, our complex, seemingly bloodthirsty general, he says this to his men when he comes across this army that he's going to face and They're behind him, and they're in front of him. And he says, and they're outnumbered. Israel's outnumbered. He says this to the men. He says, be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. Here's the thing. In both of these cases, what do we hear? The Lord is in the midst of these wars. So in chapter 8, we had a summary of David's many kingdom wars. And it's really hard. I mean, there's so much death and everything. And then what happens? We come to chapter 9. And we're surprised, aren't we? We just, it's like spring coming or something. There's just something so wonderful about it. We have David at his best. This is David as good as we're going to see him. In some ways, he is showing Hesed love to Mephibosheth. It's a wonderful story, isn't it? It's a story of kindness and generosity, a story of faithfulness and, and humbleness. It's a story of covenant love. This is the kind of story we like to hear. We don't want to read about wars. We want to read about Hesed love. We want to read about covenant love. We want to read about kindness and hope, and we have it all here. A broken and helpless orphan is shown extravagant love by the great king. It's the kind of stories that fairy tales are made of, but this is a true story. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, and he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both legs. It's an incredible picture, is it not? It's an incredible picture of God's kind of love to us. David is showing this kind of hesed love, just like God showed it to us. At the table with the great king sits the orphan, crippled Mephibosheth, always. This is beautiful, and this is kind, and it's nothing like war. And so as chapter 10 opens with that story entrenched in our hearts as we begin to read, we read of another act of Hesed. And we think, oh good, maybe we're moving into another story of beauty and kindness. 
And in one way we are, because David is again seeking a way to express God's compassionate care as God's chosen king. He's shining a light. It's like grace has infused him. When God made that promise and covenant, it's just infused him, and it's just flowing out like rivers of living water. Now, here's what I want you to know. The use of the word hesed in both chapter 9 and chapter 10 is intentional. One commentator gave this definition, and I love this, this definition of hesed. He said, it has a spectrum of meaning like a rainbow of colors from a diamond in the sunlight. It includes kindness and love, steadfastness, friendship, loyalty, justice, and sacrifice. David had shown a beautiful hesed love to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. It was covenant love from a covenant made with Jonathan, and now he is prepared to offer hesed love to the son of Nahash, a foreign king. And is that not what God had told Abram when he made that covenant? You're going to be a light to the nations. And now David's reaching out, and he's showing that kind of light to the nations. And this is the picture of David's faithfulness, both within the kingdom and without. But hesed love by the king, and this is one of the things we know, is not always received. And rejection and war is the result of the rejection of God's offer. And my friends, that's the picture of the story of Scripture. If we go back to to paradise, isn't that what happened there? We have God's hesed love. We have paradise. And what makes it paradise? God's presence. His presence causes light and flourishing and beauty and joy and shalom and extravagant abundance. And everything in, 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 in paradise is beautiful because God is there and because everything is pu- perfect and everything is great. But we know the story. An enemy comes in. An enemy comes in and sin enters and everything begins to de- deteriorate. And, and the great sin happens. We know that. We're just going to rush through this a minute. Because of their great sin. I mean, they had, they, God had said, do this and you will live. If you don't do this, you're going to die. And so sin comes in and they, and they break covenant with God. And God assembles a court and as judge, he steps forward and the curses are uttered and, and the curses were of enormous proportions. They were, there was unspeakable devastation. There would be sorrows and hardship and pain, and there would be war and death. That's what this meant. And there was separation between all kinds of things, and it went on. But, of course, the most devastating result of all was separation from God, because God could no longer be near. And they would have to leave and be cast out from the garden paradise, because sin had drawn a curtain that could not be penetrated. And so we see that the ever-increasing results of their sin would multiply day after day, week after week, year after year, generation after generation. And what do we see? Right after this, we begin to see murder of a brother. We begin to see war coming. We begin to see someone who brags about that he can kill more than anyone else. And that's the kind of thing. And everything looked hopeless, but here's what I want you to remember. In the midst of God's judgment upon Adam and Eve came the judgment upon the serpent. And 
In judging the serpent, he gave us hope. And that was the hope of humanity that began right there in the garden. And he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. And he drove the man out from the east of Eden. And you know what he did? He placed the cherubim there with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We know this story. It would take centuries and centuries for the fullness of that promise that there is going to be coming a war between evil and this great one who would come from the seed of the woman. But here's the essence of what God promised that momentous day. There would be two humanities, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan, those who would follow him. And there would be great enmity between them. The woman and her seed would have enmity with Satan. And on and on it would go. But God's promise was that someday the great seed of the woman would come and a great battle, a great war would arise between Satan and the seed of the woman. A battle of cosmic proportions in which the seed would be wounded, but Satan would be defeated. And it would be absolute defeat and absolute triumph. And here's what I want you to see. That's the language of war. That's why we keep seeing this language of war. There is a battle. There is a war going on. And since that day, deep in the heart of man, there has always been this longing back into paradise, a place of shalom. That's why we love David. That's why we love this story of Mephibosheth. We long to go back to that place. We long to go back to the place where there's no more war where God is dwelling in our midst. And we see that longing being nurtured by the Lord. And it began with this promise of land being given to Abram. And it continued when the Israelites left Egypt and, and, and they started to go in and claim that land. And then they didn't believe God and they turned against God and they said, we can't go in. The, the giants are too big and they didn't trust what God said. I've always been with you. And they didn't go into the land at that time. And then Joshua comes and he goes in and he begins fighting the battles, but they don't gain much. But all along, there is this promise, a land where the Lord would again dwell with his people. That's what the land of the promise was. That's what David is fighting for, a land where God can dwell with his people. That's why he wanted to build the temple so that they could have this permanent place where God would dwell with his people. And so on and on it would go. However, what we have to understand, it was this land would only be obtained through wars, but God would be in the midst of the battles. The language of battle and victory is everywhere in Scripture, not because human life is unimportant or that war is meant to define God's people. Rather, it's just a small taste of the ultimate struggle between the Lord and the Prince of Darkness. And it shows us why that final struggle is necessary. Because the land was meant to be a picture of God's people beginning their journey back into paradise, back into God's presence. But it was only a picture and it did not last. And God brought David great victories, and he gave the people rest from all their enemies, and then things began to fall apart, and the great temple was built. But what happened before long? Solomon was offering sacrifices to idols. 
The promise was not held in the land of Israel, nor was the seed of nor was it held in David's hands. The promise was that David's seed would bring about this final battle and this final victory. See, all of these things give us pictures and they give us types and they give us shadows, but they always let us down. God did give the sword to Israel and God did move in the midst of their wars and victory did belong to the Lord, but it was not the final victory, but it was coming. It's a, big, it's a picture of what victory will be like when God is fighting your battles. When you put your trust in the Lord, then there is, there will be a defeating of the enemy. And then we know that the birth of a child in the line of Abraham and David occurred and everything changed. He was born king of kings and lord of lords and we didn't know him. And when he began his public ministry, the first thing he faced was what? The temptation of the evil one, he faced the temptation. And he triumphed over him at that time with the power of God's word. But Satan lay in the wings waiting for a more opportune moment. And that moment came some 30 years later. And we read a part of it in Luke 22:49, where it says, Judas came into the garden to betray Jesus with a kiss. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them pulled out of the servants of the, and struck one of the servants of the high priest and cut off his ear. You know what Jesus said? No more of this. And Jesus said to Judas, this is your hour and the power of darkness. You see, the battle had begun at this point, and the seed of the woman was bruised as he died upon the cross, and it looked like total defeat. When the sword was inserted in his side, and the triumph was his as he rose on the third day and, and began opening the way back into paradise. He had offered the sacrifice, and God had accepted it, and resurrection came. And sin and Satan had been defeated and death had lost its sting and victory was the Lord's. But there remains that final battle. Well, it won't really be a battle at all because the outcome is decided. There will come a day in the midst of history when the trumpet will sound and the clouds will roll back and the Lord will descend. In the meantime, the sword has been taken away from the church. As the Lord spoke, He said, put your sword back in its place. You see, the sword of justice has instead been put into the side of our Lord. And so our battle has changed. As we close, we we begin to look back where we began this morning. We do not want to read about wars. We want to hear the story of Hesed love. And we want to eat at the table of the Hesed king, the king of extravagant love and generosity, the king who has defeated the final enemy, and we shall. But for the moment, the battles will continue as we faithfully destroy strongholds and fight against the scheme of the evil ones, as we instead do like David, spread the hesed love of the Lord, as we begin being light in the darkness. And what our call is, is to be strong and courageous and faithful. How are we to look at the kingdom wars? Well, we begin to find 
of thanksgiving in those as we see the wound in his side in which the sword was embedded. We could never, ever eat at the king's table and enjoy the fullness of his hesed kindness without the great kingdom war which the greater son of David fought on our behalf. It cost him everything, but in giving everything, he gave his people shalom at last. This is the king's doing, and someday he will provide us with a land which shall be disturbed no more, and he shall dwell with us forevermore, and that is the promise. And in the meantime, since there is no sword for us, we are to be fighting God's battle with Hesed love. In loving one another and in being a light to the nations, we are to reach out to those kings and there will be some who will reject us. We are to re- reach out to our neighbors and there will be some who reject us. But for those who come, they will come like we came. They will be crippled and they will come limping and they will eat at the king's banquet table because God is building them a house. And that's the lesson that David has for us. Let's pray. Father, um, your word is so amazing and your covenants are so faithful and true. And we cannot believe where it ended, that it ended in your son coming and suffering for us and taking the curse upon himself that we might not have to take it. And we receive it by faith, Lord, and out of us begins to flow rivers of living water. Oh, let us be those people, Lord. Let us be warriors in your kingdom and let us wear the armor that you have given us, the armor of the gospel. And Father, we pray we would be faithful in that. And we pray that we would be spreaders of Hesed love. Thank you for Mephibosheth. Thank you for his love and its overwhelming um, thankfulness to David. Lord, may we have that kind of heart. In Christ's name, amen.